Welcome to HR Futures podcast, brought to you by Circal, the people behind Working Futures. These podcasts are supported by Kaplan, partnering with you to deliver your specific organisational development needs and enhance the performance of your people and your organisation. I'm Kevin Green, I'm your host, and with me today is Valerie Dow, who is the Global HR Operations Director at Agreco PLC. Hi, Val. Hi, Kevin. Um, can you just get, sort of kick us off? Tell us a bit about the organisation, how big it is, its turnover, how many countries it operates in, and then specifically what your role is within the organisation. Yeah, so um, Agreco PLC um, provides power and temperature control solutions for organisations worldwide. So it's a global organisation. Um, we are in about 80 countries um, in all of the various different regions from EMEA, OSPAC, uh, Asia, um, Europe, Eurasia. So it's quite a big organisation, but I always describe us as um, kind of margarine on toast because we're spread quite thin. Um, okay. So across those 80 countries, we've probably got about six and a half thousand employees. Um, right. And, uh, you know, in those countries, we're providing uh, temporary power uh, and temperature control. And tell us a bit about your role. So what's your role? Because I think you went there as an HR director and you're now down the operations globally. So tell us a bit about what you're doing there. Yeah, that's right. So originally I started off looking after the Northern Europe business. And then um, we decided to embark on a, um, a HR transformation project. Um, so our group HR director asked me to um, lead and program manage that transformation project. And that was looking at HR in its entirety. So looking at um, the way we were structured, looking at our HRIS systems, looking at our business processes, um, looking at the way we do learning, the way we manage talent. Uh, and so we, we bundled all that into a, a big HR, global HR transformation project. And then, and how long have you been doing that? Go on, just tell us a bit how, how so long that, has that been going. So that was 2017. We first kicked that off, July 2017, okay. and um, and then I kind of took on the role of global HR operations uh, around uh, a year or so later, um, and, and that role is picking up our HRIS, our, our HR systems, full stop, basically and also our shared service centers. So we have three global help desks. Uh, one of those is based in Dubai. One is based in, in Houston, Texas, and, and the other one is based in Glasgow. Um, the Glasgow office looks after the whole of Europe and Eurasia. Yeah. The Dubai office looks after um, Asia, Middle East, Africa, um, and um, OSPAC. And then our... Um, uh, our Houston office looks after the Americas, basically, so yeah, okay. Latin America and, and North America. And how's the how's the project gone? Is it sort of on track? Are you getting the savings? Are you getting the benefits? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's gone really well. I mean, when we launched um, our HRIS system, which was Workday, um, it was probably the most quiet, quietest, insignificant mm -hmm. launch <laughs> that I think the company's ever experienced which felt very bizarre because, you know, you wanted it to be a big bang, but um, we didn't want it to be a big bang because we wanted it to launch really smoothly and it did. So we're really pleased with the way that's gone and we're starting to really see some of the benefits of that. Uh, yeah. And I think the HR teams as well are feeling the benefits of the help desks because 
all of that tactical day-to-day -day mm. noise that they would normally get is now being directed to the help desks or to the shared service centers and of course that's enabling them to really truly business partner now which is something yeah. they've not been able to do they're always too bogged down with phone yeah. calls of how do i do this and where do i find that and doing admin basically so and, I, and i'm sure that, that one of the great things about having a good system is you get data and the data is really important when you have to do things quickly like respond to global emergencies and things oh, like that absolutely. So. <laughs> absolutely i can't tell you how how pleased i've been when someone's phoned me up during this pandemic and said i need data on this this and this and and we're able to get it to them in an in an instant it's fantastic yeah. and even better they can get it themselves so yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going we're going through a learning and a behavioral change at the moment where people are used to going to the help desk and say i need this information and we're saying well actually you can get it yourself <laughs> um, and we we coach them and we guide them as to how they do it and then they're like oh that's fantastic i didn't realize you know that that data was at my fingertips that's great Brilliant. cool so right. yeah so i mean but that takes time it is it's definitely behavioral yeah, 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 and we most probably will come back to that. So what I want to do now is go right the way back to the beginning of your career. So I'm always interested in how did HR directors end up in HR? You know, was it a conscious choice? Was it something at university or when you were 10, you decided you wanted to be in HR? Or was it something that happened a bit later? So tell us a bit how, you know, tell us a bit about how you ended up in HR. Yeah, I think like most school kids, that nobody really gets to hear about HR. So it wasn't a conscious career decision that I chose at, at that time. Um, I, I, I just wanted to get out to work. So I, I went out to work at 16 and, and just worked hard and, and did jobs. And then eventually um, worked for rent a Initial, got a job, a most fantastic job title in the world. I was called the Divisional um, uh, Executive Administrator which I thought was amazing. And I was probably, what, 22 at the time. Yeah. Um, and rent a kill then um, didn't have HR departments. Um, I think our CEO at the time thought HR meant her responsibility. Um, oh, right. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> didn't just didn't have, a, just didn't have an understanding of what HR did. But actually, I didn't realise I was actually doing a HR role because I was the okay. one that was responsible for sending out contracts of employment and, and did some auditing uh, on sites as well, which was good fun. Um, and then we did the reverse takeover for um, BET, which then was when we became rent a kill Initial. And Initial was a very different culture and it had HR departments. And that was when I then first got my first official HR title. Um, uh, and that was just as HR admin um, but was determined to um, carry on in this strange world and um, yeah decided I wanted to my boss was retiring wanted to apply for his role his HR manager role and um, set about getting my CIPD qualification in in two years so that I could I could fill his boots and that's how it all started cool and you and you you know no looking back you've enjoyed it have you enjoyed being yeah. in HR definitely i mean the, the thing i love about hr is you're in the you're in the vortex of everything you're right in the core you know you you, you know i mean in my career i've i've been on sales pitches i was um I, when i worked for g4s i did part of the sales pitch for the olympic um olympic games which was fantastic really we might, we, we might come back to that yeah i, think, yeah, I thought you might i thought you might um and um 
you know, it's quite unusual for a HR person to actually be taken on to a sales pitch yeah. to a customer. But um, yeah. it's something I'm very passionate about, the learning. In those days, I was dealing with a lot of cheapy contracts. So mm. I was able to talk to the customer about how we would manage those cheapy transfers. Um, and then, you know, the next minute you're in marketing or you're in, in the finance side of things, looking at the way you can do things differently. Um, you know, the, the, the two biggest companies I've worked for have had really tight margins. You know, they're in the service well, sector. I was going to come back to that because one of the things okay. that's interesting about your CV is you've sort of always worked in organisations where um, there's a lot of people. Um, they're quite operational. I think you're right, margin. So G4S and initial, well, rent-a-kill initial, I think, you know, tough businesses to run very successful but yeah. they're they're lean aren't they they're lean and mean they're operational businesses yeah uh, greco so. uh, greco i think has got some similarities might be slightly different but got some similarities but you've never been in a i don't know a marketing-led organization or fast-moving consumer goods. you've always chosen what i would call quite gritty hr roles is is that a conscious choice um i, I think it's 50 50 um I, i'm not much of a maintain what i call a maintainer i like the challenge. I like to do things and change things and transform things. So, um, you know, I, I think I would struggle in organisations where there isn't a lot of change and there's not a lot of challenge. Um, you know, I like to, to do things different. I like to make a difference. So if I've not got that opportunity, then it's not going to fulfil me as an individual or my career. So yeah. it's been a bit 50-50. I think because of what I've done within my career, then those organizations have chosen me as well because that's what they need. Yeah. And I think that's really important that you're, cho you're choosing the organization, but the organization is choosing you. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it is about fit, isn't it? You know, it's about yeah, sometimes, you know, you know, you normally know when you've taken a new job within a, a few months about whether it's going to work for you and for them, because there's that, you know, it feels symbiotic. It feels good. It feels natural rather than it being forced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's just go on to the current crisis so we're six weeks in i'm giving people a bit of an idea when we recorded this um and just tell me about how you've reacted to covid i want to say you i don't mean you personally i mean agreco because again it's a, it's a tough thing for organizations to deal with it came on us at pace without much warning you know country after country locked down trying to continue business. I'm sure that Glastonbury being cancelled and lots of other events being cancelled has had huge impact on the business. So just tell me about how the business responded. How did it deal with the crisis? Yeah, it's been a mixed bag for us, actually. So you're absolutely right. The good news is that, that they've not been cancelled altogether. They've just been, you know, um, postponed Delayed, yeah. and rescheduled to next year. So next year might might be a good year that we wasn't anticipating. Um, um, but also, um, you know, where we have seen some dips, we've also seen some um, orders coming in as well. I mean, if you think about the fact that we offer temporary power and temperature control, that's actually being needed right now. You know, all of these pop-up um, testing centres, the hospitals, all of these places that are, uh, are being, um, you know, uh, spontaneously created as a result of COVID-19 okay. need power. Um, you know, need, so like, so like, the, like the Nightingale hospitals in the UK that they've established, you've been. Yeah, those that, kind yeah. of things. So, so where we need, where we need, um, you know, or, or where a customer needs some temporary power because, you know, they're, they're doing something that they wouldn't normally do. 
then we're a, we've been able to provide that. So it's been sort of you know ups and downs and and swings and roundabouts really. Um, okay. our how, CEO, about the, how about the how about the people stuff? How's that been going? You know, yeah, trying to I was keep just going to say uh, the, 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 there's two things there that I, I just want to point out. The first one being that you know because we provide power and and temperature control we're almost like another emergency service because if that power goes down or, or that um, cooling system goes down and that's keeping, you know, uh, medical supplies cool, yeah. then um, obviously that's a, that's a huge problem and a huge impact. So our frontline staff, our field engineers, our mechanical and uh, electrical engineers are still working out there. The rest of the organisation is all working from home. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the whole world is going to change as a result of people working from home. And you can imagine how many businesses were saying, no, you can't work from home. You can't work from home. And now we can. Um, so we've been really good. We've been we've we've been really agile. We've been able to get everybody to work from home that could. And they are. Uh, and we've been able to keep our field um, engineers out there. Um, doing mm. all that all they need to do to our kit and what have the challenges been what are the things where you've had to overcome something you know you hadn't thought that through that's become more difficult or you know there's always challenges in these things I think I think you said you know quite clearly I, I know you work at home and I know other people in in, in uh, your business are, are sort of used to working at home but having everyone at home all of a sudden is a bit of a change and Doing, you know, doing video conferences from the beginning of the day to the end of the day is a bit different. I've, you know, I've certainly noticed yeah. that. So, yeah. so what, have there been any particular challenges or things that you, you know, yeah. people felt I, a bit lonely or a bit? The, oh, absolutely. Know? And I, I, I think that's been the biggest challenge. So one, we're not used to working from home. I am, obviously, as you just said, but we, we, we've got people that have got completely different environments. They don't, they, they don't have an office like I have. You know, they've got other members of their family. They've got, they're having to homeschool. They're having to childcare. Mm. They're having to, you know, deal with that embarrassing situation when, you know, your son comes in and kisses you and you're on a video call. You know, all those kind of things. But, but that's what makes us human and that's what makes it actually quite nice. So, um, but I think those are the challenges. You know, people are trying to be professional still and not necessarily have the environment or the technical kit to be able mm. to do that. So I think ramping up that home working very quickly has been the challenge because people haven't got the correct resources or the right resources. But because it's temporary, I think people are managing with it. I think there is a bit of a problem around the isolation. You know, a lot of my, my team and a lot of teams work together in offices and they're really missing that human contact and that interaction mm. and that daily banter in the office. I think one of the things I've picked up, and it was interesting, is I think you're right, it's about a lot about home situation, but one of the things I, I, I hadn't thought about was someone said, look, we've got a lot of young people that are living in cities on their own, mm. you know, and they've been locked down. And you, you think, you know, I mean, I, in some ways, it's been quite nice for me. I'm at home with my family, my son's here, my dear, you know, we sit in the garden in the evening, it's all been, you know, quite <laughs> pleasant. But if I was in a small flat on my own, not being able to go out for a month or six weeks, then without much human contact, obviously, you know, you can talk to people and connect through phones and computers and stuff, but, you know, people are in different circumstances and it, it creates more difficulty for people depending on how they're set up and stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a, this is a huge behaviour and educational piece for our managers as well, because they're not used to managing people remotely. So yeah. there's this whole 
Um, and, I, and I'm sure other HR departments have probably had the same question, you know, I need a report on people's log on and log off times, you know, I want to, I, I need to know that they're working and, and you, you've got to kind of educate them that it's more about output and productivity yeah, than yeah, it yeah. is about how many hours you sit in front of a computer. And if I've got to do homeschooling, then, you know, I might need to get up early or work a bit later in the evening. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't no. be managing people remotely the same way we would in an office. And, and the amount, I mean, it's a trust thing, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting. Absolutely. There's, a, there's a great Harvard Business Review article about looking at uh, remote workers. And what it shows is 80% um, of remote workers feel more engaged than um, people that work in an office. So that's mm. interesting. Yeah. Second one, 65% feel more trusted which i think is absolutely right because actually they're just trust, trusted to deliver the outcome aren't they you know yeah. you, people can't watch them you don't know what they're doing all day but actually they get the job done and actually yeah. if you do that a lot then you think actually this is a great organization so mm. how have you gone about educating those line managers that go i want to know how long they've been on the phone or how long they've been on their computer <laughs> how do you how do you convince them this isn't the right way to go yeah, I mean, we've put three or four guides together. One, one is about um, you as an individual working remotely. And then one is about how to manage a team that's working remotely. Um, and then, you know, just a, a kind of how to do things differently and how to engage um, through virtual meetings. Um, and so we've been using those to send out to managers and, you know, if we do get asked anything that we think's you know not not quite the right way to be doing things then you know it's a it's a conversation and a call and you know a bit of coaching really to to, oh, yeah. to get them on okay. the right track and it's just okay. because they don't know and they've not done this before so we can't expect them to be perfect at it can we no they're not going to get it right straight away are they no. um so let's move let's move away from covid for a little bit we might sort of come back to that towards the end I sort of want to look at your career and go, you know, what's the thing that you, you're most proud of? The thing that, you know, has been your biggest achievement today? Because I'm always interested in that, you know, because I'm interested in stories and narratives because, <laughs> you know, I think you learn from that, don't you, in your careers when, you know, that really went well. Why is that? What did we do that was great? Um, and, and that helps you uh, develop and grow, doesn't it? Yeah, it so I think I think this latest project that I've done has been pretty, pretty good it's been quite quite um uh, a learning experience for me but i think the biggest thing that i have learned so much from understood more about resilience than agility and i'm most proud of is the olympics 2012 olympics yeah. working for g4s now i, I want to talk about that <laughs> because, because now, a lot of people because... go why would you pick that well i was also going to ask a question about uh, failures, you know, things that have gone wrong in your career and what have you learned from that? Because, uh, you know, so tell me a bit about that because again, I remember you winning the, the bid and, you know, and, and, and doing the staffing and, and then the media just picked up that we didn't have enough people and it, the security and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And, and G4S got, you know, its reputation took a bit of a hiding if we're honest. So tell us about, mm. tell us about it from your perspective. From yeah, the inside. It was, it, it, so it was a real, it was a really interesting, I mean, I'd love to write a book on it, but I don't think I'm uh, eloquent enough, but it was a really, um, uh, and I hate this word, but it wasn't a real emotional roller coaster. You know, the, the elation for, for winning it, to be able to mm. provide it, how proud as, a, a, as an organisation we felt, how proud as a presentation team we felt that they picked us and, and we were going to be delivering the Olympics we were going to be part of that 
Olympic family was just absolutely mind-blowing. Um, you know, the, the team was set up to, um, to, to deliver. Um, we would, you know, it was a great job. There was lots of difficulties. There were lots of challenges. I mean, I always described it to get a security guard was a bit like a Pillsbury Doughman. You know, you, you, there were like seven elements that you had to go through. They had to have an interview and they had to have a, a smell and an eye test to get through that interview stage. Oh, okay. They had to have five years worth of screening and vetting. Um, yeah, yeah. They then had to go through um, our, our Olympic um, home security screening. They then had to go through um, some uh, SIA training. Uh, so the security industry authority training yeah, yeah. in order for them to become a, a security officer. And then they would have to go through role-specific training. So there was about five or six elements that you needed to be this perfect security guard. Um, and they were all delivered across all of the UK in all of the different venues across the whole of the UK. So we were recruiting in, in, in so many areas. This had never been done in a million years, ever. Uh, our original so, so, contract. So, so, so wasn't it done in previous Olympics? Can you learn from people that have done it before? Yeah, well, that's where I think there's a big gap because what tends to happen is the um, the Olympic Authority moves around, but yeah, yeah. but but the providers and the suppliers don't. Okay. So. Um, so, and it's quite a competitive environment, don't forget as well, when you're, when you're looking yeah. at cleaning and catering and security. So um, I think originally we were contracted to supply 2,000 security guards and then mm. they realised that that was, and the army was going to be supporting, was always going to be supporting. And then they realised that that wasn't enough and came back to us and asked if we could provide 10,000 security guards. Right, okay. Um, and... Um, I won't go so into if you, if you, too much a, detail, no, but, but, it, but if you'd have stuck, if they'd have stuck to the original order, you'd have most probably been okay. It was the ramp up from two to ten thousand that created the problem. Uh, yeah, you, and, and there was no relaxing of the of the rules as well uh, in order to do that. So for every every hundred people that you were recruiting, um, and and uh, remember, Stratford is quite a multicultural. Mm. Um, area there was low unemployment in there that's one of the reasons why they picked it but there was low unemployment there so to screen and vet somebody in that for five years mm. that that could be you know in in and out of jobs you'd have to get a, um, yeah, 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 a, a yeah, reference yeah. for every single job they were in so it was quite a mammoth task to do some of this stuff yeah. um, uh, and you know it took time there was a huge funnel um, uh, for you to get 10,000 people, I think we needed over 100,000 interviews to take place. Um, and, and, and of course, then that before even a turnstile had, had happened, there was this um, uh, leak somehow that they thought that we weren't going to be able to deliver. Mm. And the whole organisation just went into this bizarre um, almost I, I i can't even explain it very Panic? protective that, no, um, no no not that because the you know what the media are like they 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 are um, yeah, yeah. sensationalism i call it uh, yeah, it's paparazzi yeah. media yeah. and 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 they just came at the organization like bloodhounds just looking for stories they tried to infiltrate the training classes to say that the training was no good they infiltrated the interviewing yeah. all to get a story i mean it was vile it was really vile 
But yeah. what, what behavior that drove within the organization was grit, determination, resilience, agility, and a pure passion to get that right and to get this over the line. And we threw people in, and I was part of one of the parachute team that went in to look after the training side of things. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, way the, the way the organization came together was incredible. Um, mm. We was in like a war cabinet room with yeah, 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 yeah. ministers, with colonels, brigadiers, <laughs> um, you know, my CEO, my uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. VP. I mean, it was, and, and you were in there reporting almost on an hourly basis what was happening and how we were dealing with it and how we were turning the numbers around. So a fabulous learning experience. One I, I, I don't want anybody to ever go through, but I am personally very blessed and have grown exponentially as a result of it. Uh, so, I mean, it was incredible. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I had one of those, that, as you know, at Royal Mail was one of those yeah. types of roles. And it was quite similar. We got infiltrated and media and all of that. So I, I, I get it. Um, and I do think, you know, ad adversity is the mother of invention. Organisations mm. come together and, and are very creative when they're under that type of pressure. And we've seen a lot of that with COVID. I just want you to elaborate. So what would be the biggest piece of learning for you personally? What did you take away from that experience? Data. Go on. <laughs> elaborate. So, so I think where we needed to be tighter as an organisation, there, there, there were lots of decisions being made, not, not just by G4S, by the government and, and things like that. And we could always say that, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But I think for us, because there were so many elements across so many venues, across so many venues uh, uh, throughout the whole of the UK, you know, it wasn't just London that the Olympics mm. were delivered in. They were delivered in Scotland, in Manchester, all those football stadiums. Mm. And what I think we lacked was a holistic um, database showing who had gone through what stage of their Pills, recruitment, their recruitment, their training, their screening and vetting, their licensing, their home office screening, who had gone through what bit um, and would therefore be available to work in a particular venue was the bit that we um, we lacked at the beginning. Mm. Uh, and that's where that's what we learned. That's okay. where we when we realized uh, and we did have, um, you know, plenty of um, uh, uh, officers ready to, to deliver mm. um, but but there were some that just were missing this element or were missing that element yeah, or yeah, needed yeah. to just complete that piece yeah. um, uh, and so uh, because we had to do it quite quickly instead of doing it you know sequentially we, we ended up in parallel yeah 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 you had to do it in parallel and therefore you really needed strong data to say yeah, right yeah. kevin needs his license and he needs to do his role specific training and you know that person yeah. is is ready to go okay so, so data for me yeah great um I'm going to, I think we'll take a short break um, okay. and then we'll be back in the second half of this podcast. In the second half of this podcast, I'm going to talk to Val a bit about HR strategy, a bit about the profession uh, and the future for HR. And then finally, we're going to find out a bit about what Val does or Val the person, what she does outside of work and, and, and what, uh, you know, how does she balance work and life and all of that sort of stuff. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes.
As the world comes to terms with the COVID-19 crisis, Circal want to help HR leaders look to the future. Will the crisis shift the world of work for good? What will this look like? And how should HR leaders help prepare their business? These are the questions that Kevin Green and the resident Circal experts will consider as part of the Shifting World of Work content series. Visit circal.co.uk to find out how you can get free access to Circal's up-to-the-minute news, research and opinion for you and your team today. Welcome back to the second part of our HR Futures podcast, brought to you by Sir Cal, uh, in partnership with Kaplan. Um, in the second half, I, what I want to do, Val, is, is talk to you a little bit about HR strategy and a bit about the profession. So let's kick off by, um, tell us about how you make decisions, you know, when you've been a, an HR director, about what to put in an HR plan and strategy, what to focus on, and perhaps what not to focus on. Because I think a lot of people early in their career listen to these podcasts and are looking for insight from HR directors. And, and one of the problems I have with HR is we, I think we try and do too much. We focus on too many things. And I think prioritization and focus on fewer things and really executing them well moves organizations on. But I'm interested in your take. So how do you prioritize? How do you decide what to do, what to focus on and what not to? Yeah, so my, my so my focus on strategy has always been about what the business needs, and it depends on the organisation. There's no one thing that fits because, you know, like I said before, I, I've worked in um, two organisations that have got really tight margins uh, and are and there's a huge focus on budgets and and costs, uh, and so in those organisations, there's no point starting to look at you know um, investing in. Um, systems or learning and development packages unless they're going to get a good return on that investment and because they're you know you're taking it directly from the bottom line so so for me it's always about what is the organization trying to achieve and then how can we support them to to get them there so, um, you know, a great example of that was, you know, again, G4S, we did screening and vetting. Um, we ended up looking at selling that screening and vetting outside of the organization. It was a HR yeah. service, an internal HR service. Um, but the way nice. we could contribute to the bottom line was by commercializing that. Yeah. Um, you know, in another organization, we had a real lack of um, management coming through our succession and we were spending lots of money on recruitment to, to bring in managers that then didn't yeah. fit the culture. So uh, the strategy there was we needed to um, internally grow our own, if you like, yeah. um, uh, and have a, have a, like, a little incubation of, of managers that were coming up and invest in their learning so that they, they stayed with us. We retained them. So it can be different things for different organizations, but the most important thing about a HR strategy is that it meets the business needs. It's yeah. no good putting something in because you think it's great or it's a good thing to do. It's either got to meet the plan on the page or, or the strategic focus and intention of, of where the business is going, uh, or, it, or it, won't, it won't get any adoption and, um, and it will fail. Okay. I'm going to take one of the little things just as you were saying that I thought that's interesting. The thing about HR directors or HR business partners is building those relationships with business leaders. You know, any hints and tips around that? Things that, you know, relationships when you look back on your career and go, yeah, we were great. We worked brilliantly together and other people, it wasn't quite the same. So 
and what was that? What do you do to, you know, if you were giving advice to a, an HR business partner, perhaps doing a big role or becoming an HR director for the first time, how do they build those sort of relationships with the people that they're supporting or advising? Yeah, I think there's a few things, actually. I think openness and honesty is really important. So if you can't do something or you don't know the answer, don't be afraid um, to say that because you've got to build credibility. Um, you know, with, with your MD or, who, or, or even the, the board that you're working with, you have to build cred credibility. So, so that would be one of the first things I would say is to, to bring that, build that relationship, build your credibility and build your, um, you know, your, your relationship with them mm. and, and deliver on, on what you say you're going to deliver on. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the times um, you can be the great strategist, but if you can't implement it, um, you're no further forward yeah. and vice versa you know you need to be able to strategize and know what you need to do um, uh, and you also need to be able to implement it so so those yeah. two things are quite important I think it, it's about building credibility and doing what you say you're going to do delivering yeah, yeah, yeah. on those um, and I think also um, it, it's about managing your stakeholders as well so um, and what I mean by that is you're going to work with various different people. They're going to need different types of knowledge and information from you. They're going to rely on you very differently um, and need different information. So you need to understand your stakeholders, understand their lingo, their jargon, um, and be able to, um, you know, keep them informed with the information and, and at the rate of knots that, <laughs> that, that they need. And yeah. the other thing I've always said to, to my MDs is I'm going to be your conscience and I'm going to be your confidant. Um, and that means you can tell me anything, but if I think you're doing something wrong, I'm going to let you know as well. And, and how do they react to that? Normally, normally leaders like that, don't they? They, oh, yeah, want their yeah, HR, yeah. they want their HR person to go, do you know what? I'm not quite sure you handled that as well as you could have done. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, they've all employed me and they've all you know I've been in I've, I've worked for most of the MDs I've worked for for a number of years so I, I think it's a, a successful yeah. formula <laughs> okay um, so one of the things I've always asked sort of HR leaders in these podcasts is tell me a bit about what you think HR doesn't do well and I think you've mentioned a few things that I'm sure may well come up um, but, but perhaps then I'm going to change it slightly. So tell us a bit about HR's failings or areas of weakness or whatever, but then tell us what you think the opportunity is in a post-COVID world for the HR profession. Yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question because I, I, think, I think HR does more good than it does wrong. Okay. Um, I think... I think where where the the kind of damage comes or or the, the or the poor kind of reputation of it is uh, is where HR can sometimes get too um, fluffy or too policing. I suppose is, yeah. is you know there, there, there seem to be policy bounty hunters or um, uh, <laughs> you know they're not they're not flexible enough or there's just no bite in what they're doing and what they're delivering and that that that's a little bit around the i can i can create a fantastic strategy but if i don't know how to implement it and it's not going to make a difference then that's the kind of fluffy bit coming out yeah um, um and so i think and tell me a bit about the policing because i think that's one of our problems we still have policy 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 and 
you've got to do it by the rules and we're rule based and i'm not convinced that as we look to the future that organizations want you know they need some principles and they need some guidance but you know, I still think there's HR people out there writing 15 page policy documents that no one ever reads. And what we then spend our time doing is catching managers out going, ah, you didn't read the policy, you haven't done it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a, it is definitely a little bit about that. It's a little bit about um, um, not being commercial enough for the business, yeah. I think, is the other, is, the, is, is where that comes from or where I believe that comes from. Because, you know, um, we, we can say, oh, the manager wants to dismiss someone or they want to do, they want to promote someone. And we can hide behind the policies saying, oh, but have we developed them properly? Or we can hide behind, yeah, but have you gone through all the warnings that you need to go through? Um, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, they have a need and, um, uh, uh, and, they've, and they've got to deliver to the, our customers, to our front line. Yeah, um, yeah. And they need our support to help them do that. So if we hide behind the policies um, and we don't look at the commercial side and, and the business side, mm. and, that's where, and that's where it's a conflict, you know, because you, you, you've got the law and you've got the policy and you've got the process and you've got fairness and you've got consistency and you've got discrimination and you've got to have all of those, but the business needs to, be, needs to move and it needs to be agile. So yeah, yeah. it's balancing those two things. And I think that's probably where we struggle the most as a, yeah. as a function yeah. is um, that mix between what's principles and, <laughs> and policies versus yeah. sometimes you just got to get things done and you've got to find a way to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think HR is a lot about managing risk. I think really good commercial HR yeah. people go, yeah, I can see what you're trying to do. I understand why you're trying to do it. But we need to think about this, this, and this. Um, some reputational risk. Yeah. It could be employment. But actually, I tell you what, on the law of averages, we've got to make a call and go for it. And I think yeah. HR people learn that quite early. And if they learn it early, you know, they absorb it and it becomes a way of operating. If they don't, I think they often struggle as they, they mature and develop because it's yeah. a core requirement, I think. And that was that bit I was just, that was that bit I was just saying about conscience and confidence. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, 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 they've got to they've got to trust you enough to be able to say, "Oh, look, Val, this has happened, and this is what I did." That's the confident bit, and then the conscience for me to go, you know, well, <laughs> might not have done that quite right, um, but let's yeah, let's yeah. see what we can do. Let's see how we <clears throat> we get around it and we make the call. Yeah, yeah. I had a great live manager, live manager conversation once <laughs> with a guy, one of the, the operators, and he said, he phoned me up and said, oh, God, you never guess what happened this morning. I've sacked, I've sacked about 300 people. I said, sorry? He said, well, there was a fight in a canteen. He said, so I've walked in and I've told them they're all sacked. And I went, that's it, is it? He said, yeah, they're all gone. <laughs> so, uh oh Oh, I think we weren't quite following any kind of process, anyhow. <laughs> but he was sort of right directionally. It was right. This is un, you know, this is this is unacceptable. But if he'd have just thought about it and talked to a couple of people before he just went for it, it might have been helpful. But anyhow, <laughs> you know, I'll never forget him. I'll never forget his name. <laughs> um, um, so the the back end of my question was about and the opportunities for HR in a post COVID world. You know, what changes do you think might happen? You know, in terms of work and how it's organised and how businesses respond. Um, I think there's lots of things I can see floating around. I'd just be interested in your take on it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of challenges and there's a lot of opportunities. I think 
I think everybody's gonna, everybody's feeling this, that what's gonna happen about working from home requests going forward? Gonna be <laughs> because, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, because all of those people that were refused before or, or who was told, you know, you can't work from home, we need people in an office is gonna be, um, uh, is gonna have a pretty difficult time, um, unless it has gone fundamentally, you know, disastrously wrong for, for that particular company, they're gonna have a difficult time to, to do that but yeah. I, but I and I also think the challenge is you know it, it it's a certain mindset working from home and it won't suit everybody either so mm. yeah the challenge will be around how how you get that balance right um you know we're humans at the end of the day we we like interaction and, and especially HR people you know we we um for our sins like people and <laughs> therefore um, yeah. need the need that interaction so i think there's a there's a kind of challenge there i think the win on that side is this is going to open up a whole new market of of labor to us mm. that people have ignored in the past not in necessarily intentionally and certainly not maliciously so we've got but, go, to give me an example of that what women returners or kids yeah you think about all or... those all those all those disabled people people with 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 ability problems mobility problems people that uh, working mums people with childcare or caring responsibilities that could do days from home but have never been able to um, have that opportunity because there hasn't been those kind of jobs in the market and I think this is I think this has an opportunity a positive opportunity to open up more home working for people um, mm. you know I, I saw a, 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 a message on a whatsapp group uh, about uh, a, co a call center who are working mm. from home and they said they can't believe how well a call center is where is working from home so that will mm. give if they if they want to embrace that that will give their organization a whole new labor market that they can tap into um yeah. uh, and employ you know more more people different people I, diverse people yeah i get that though. i really get that i think that is a great opportunity the other thing i'm interested in is the sort of you know you talked about the leadership i think a lot of leaders have, have, have stepped in, you know, when there's a moment of crisis, you either step up or you fall over, really. I think well, I've seen loads of people step up, communicate. There's a business I'm working with made a few hundred staff redundant. Chief exec phoned every single person. I was, I was blown away and basically said to them, this isn't your fault. I've got to make, I've got to save the business, blah, blah, blah. And then said, as soon as we get to the other side and we're growing again, you just, you know, you identify that you've worked here before you get first priority in terms of coming back. And I just sat, sat there and thought, actually, I'd work for that person. Even if they made me redundant, I'd go back because of the way they did it. So yeah. I suppose what I'm saying is, do you think that, you know, some of managers and leaders have learned a lot about the, you know, the stuff we've been telling them for years about how to manage people, communicate, engage describe help them learn you know all of that stuff we go on and on about and yeah. sometimes i just go oh yeah 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 you know yeah so definitely me. yeah i definitely think that's the case i think you know you you um your organization is is all about about its leaderships and how those leaderships uh, how those leaders behave will set the reputation for organizations after this pandemic for mm. for many many years i mean i've heard some horrific stories about the way organizations have or, or are attempting to lead through this and i i wouldn't go anywhere near that organization not not to purchase anything or to work for them again 
Uh, and then, you know, like you say, there are other organisations that are biting the bullet. They're, they're making really tough, hard decisions about having to make redundancies, but they're caveating that, like you've said, yeah. with a way that, that shows true leadership and, and you know, and morals <laughs> and caring yeah. for their employees, even though as difficult as it is for them to make that decision, yeah. sometimes it's better to... To, to protect and have longevity and sustainability in the short term, that's what you're making those decisions for. And, and, I, think, um, and I think all that bit about behavioral leadership that we've been talking about um, <laughs> um, and, and we try and deliver through, through courses, um, people, have, people are living that learning, experiential learning right now, and we'll learn a lot more through it than than any course that, that yeah. can give them yeah i, th I think they, they see the results as well i mean i think I, i've seen organizations where you know people are working from home and they're doing all the whether they're using teams but they're having early morning check-ins and lunches together and you know i've yeah. you know i've plugged into lots of different organizations and there's a really good vibe you know that people yeah. are pulling together they're trying to do the right thing for the organization and and, and it's and it's powerful, and I just think that organisations that grasp the opportunity to really engage their staff and take people with them will get the benefits on the other side. You know that discretionary effort, productivity, yeah. performance—it comes through people, doesn't it? And having a little bit of fun as well. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I have a, a weekly call with my entire team, so there's about mm. eighteen of us, and, and they're in Houston and in Dubai and in Scotland. So we, we we've got time zone problems and we and we've got some kind of language problems. But what I decided to do yesterday was to get my daughter, my fifteen year old daughter, to run the meeting for me, <laughs> and the team loved it. They absolutely loved it, and that's just and that bringing the human side yeah. to life. So how did she run the meeting? What she just sort of chaired it, did she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so they all had to pick a nickname. So she, she, um, she, she said they all had to pick a nickname, and then they had to explain it. So she picked each one of them, and they yeah, had to yeah. explain what their nickname was. Uh, and then we used a, a, a website that does sort of interactive presentations where you can press buttons and you get points oh, okay. and, yeah, 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 yeah. and all that kind of stuff and you know one of the questions was how are you feeling right now and they had to type in three words and then it showed up on the screen the words that they were feeling and she would talk to them about it and it was you know very simple very but they actually loved the fact that she did it they thought it was quite funny and yeah. um uh, and they loved the fact that they saw a little bit of their their boss's life, life. And, and yeah, yeah. yeah. made so, it normal yeah. Is your daughter a potential HR person of the future? No, she she absolutely doesn't want to be in HR. <laughs> she sees what I do, and she's like, I'm not going to do that. She she wants to be her. She wants to be an MD or a, or a CEO is what she keeps telling me. So, well, there's nothing wrong with that. No, nothing no, wrong with that absolutely. So we'll see. And, and but I think the interesting thing is, I I think one of my big opportunities for HR, I think there will be HR. There, you know, I've been interviewed by people management stuff about. Why do HR people not become CEOs? And I'm like one of about five people they can find. So it's a very mm. small pool. Um, and I go, I think there's a huge opportunity. I think there's lots of great HR directors that are coming up. And what I say to people when they're talking to me about HR careers is do some line jobs early. You know, mm. do some sales, marketing, doesn't matter what you do, but manage people, manage teams. Because one, it will make you a better HR director. And later on, if you want to go back into a line role, a leadership role, you've got a breadth of experience 
experience. So you haven't just done HR, you've done the operational side or the sales yeah. side. And, and I think we need to see careers managed like that a bit more. Um, what's your take on that? No, I absolutely agree. Um, I'd love to do a role like that. I really would. I think it's, I think it's, I think because we're involved and we're in the core of so much, you've got much more exposure to the business as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and I think, um, I, I think we, that should absolutely be encouraged. I think businesses have got to want to take that chance a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the tradition is they tend to come from a financial background because of the numbers. Um, but why would you have a CFO in place if, if you've got a CEO yeah, yeah. that's, that's, that's great with numbers, you, that, you know, you yeah, kind yeah. of got two of the same thing, haven't you? So, um, yeah, I, I think that's exactly what we should do and we should try and encourage, um, uh, okay. HR people to do that more. So, uh, a couple of questions to go. I suppose it, it sort of follows on from that nicely and the question about your daughter. So a young HR per, a person that's perhaps at university comes to you and says, should I have a career in HR? You know, what advice do you give them? I think my first question is always, well, why have you, why have you chosen HR in the first place? So I like to get an understanding as to why they've picked HR. Oh, I'll tell you what, if they say to you, <laughs> I tell you like this, people. Yes. What do you say to him then? HR isn't about liking people. It should be about how you can help the organisation through its people achieve what it needs to achieve. And whether that's growth in a particular area or growth in a country or, you know, selling more of their products, you know, selling more to their customers of different products or, um, you know, growing into or diversifying into different areas or different products. You can't do that just because you like people. You, yeah. You've got to have a business mindset that's going to, we just happen to have human resources or people uh, in our title, but our business mindset has to be exactly the same. Uh, and, and our mindset has to be even bigger than most of the other functions because we are responsible for the people that are going to get the organization yeah. where it needs to get. Um, the numbers will follow, okay. you know, the sales will come if we've got the right people in the right jobs doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and that's the most important bit. That's what we do. That's different. It's not about liking people. No. Okay. Last question then, Val. I want to know a bit about you. So, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will be keen to hear about, about <laughs> what you do outside of work. Cause again, you know, we're all, uh, fully rounded human beings. I, I, I know a couple mm -hmm. of things. I'm sure you're going to mention karate. Um, <laughs> uh, but tell me, tell us a bit about what you do outside of work. You know, you're you into music, reading, uh, literature, theatre, films, doesn't matter. Just tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, I like most things, actually. I, I, I really do. But I've got, um, I've got three kids. So I've been married 25 years, 26 years this year. Um, in fact, we had our big, big birthdays last year. I was 50, Robin was 60, and it was our 25th wedding anniversary. So, so we had a great party, Gatsby party, which was a lot of fun. Um, I've got three children. My daughter, eldest daughter, Georgina's 23. She'll be 24 this year. And she's in TV. Um, she's a production secretary. And then I've got twins, Thomas and Charlotte, that are 15, nearly 16, and have been affected by COVID because obviously they should have been doing their GCSEs this year. Yeah. So it's been very strange for them um, and a bit of a challenge and hard to motivate them uh, and hard mm. to get my son off of his computer. Um, but, um, 
very fortunate. They had an interview with a college that they wanted to go to and they were offered a place. So that's great. And, they're both, and they're both going to the same college? Yeah, funnily enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Thomas is doing um, engineering, physics and maths and Charlotte's going to be doing business studies and economics. So, so we're absolutely over the moon that they've got into college because that's now given them, you know, uh, something, a future to sort of look forward to. So that's good. Mm. Um, and then the whole family, as you just mentioned, is um, into karate. So my husband's been doing karate for over uh, 40 or 45 years, I think. Started when he was about 15. Um, and then I, when we got together, I started to join in and I thought I'd either be a karate widow or I might as well join in and have a go at this, 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 uh, martial art. Uh, absolutely loved it. Fell in love with it. I've been doing it for nearly 30 years as well now. <clears throat> um, we're both, uh, fifth dance. We were hoping to be going for our sixth dan. In fact, it should have been on Sunday. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, obviously, because of the COVID situation, we weren't so able I, to. So you to know, go. I don't. You know, I don't know about karate. So you get a black belt, and then you get the dans on top of that, do you? Yeah, Up to so what's in, the highest dan then? So in our association, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, in our association, the Karate Union of Great Britain, um, you it takes you three years to get to a black belt, and yeah. you have to go through the, the, the certain grades, and that's called your first dan. And then yep. for every grade thereafter. every grade thereafter you have to wait the equivalent number of years so for second down you have to wait two years for third down three years for fourth down four years so on and so on and and for sixth down between fifth down and sixth down you actually have to wait eight years before you can go for your sixth down and during that time you're learning new staff you should be um uh, you know, contributing back to the KUGB like we do. So I'm the Southern Region Secretary for our area. Um, I'm a judge. I'm a referee as well. So when we have our competitions, um, you know, I, I, I can judge and referee the kids that are on the floor. Mm. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we've also got our own club um, and we instruct and, and, and all sorts of things. So, so in reality, apart from doing your big job, uh, and the karate and the kids there can't be a lot of time for much else can there <laughs> no not really not really but i do i do enjoy going to bed and reading a book um okay i quite like uh, uh, uh again a good range of books I, sometimes i like some no-brainers ones that i don't have to think and then um other ones um cj sampson i've read quite a lot of those oh, books yeah, yeah. i think we had a conversation about this one did i did i did i tell you about blood and sugar Yes, you did. Yeah, that's a, one that's on my list. It's a cracker. It really right. is. And you're, if you like historical novels, I mean, I'm reading the Hilary Mantle uh, one at the moment, you know, the third one that just came out, which is right. after Wolf Hall. But the problem with that, it arrived in the post and it's about five inches thick. You know, it's like <laughs> 1,300 pages. And I just went, mm. <laughs> I've started, but it's just too heavy to hold in bed. <laughs> oh, do you on your, book, on your phone or your iPad? Yeah, I can't read on that. I can't. I have to have paper. <laughs> Yeah, so karate is a very, very big part of our life. We love it. We train most weekends, so it's very yeah. bizarre uh, right now not being able to train and teach. Um, but we are doing Zoom lessons for our for our oh, club, okay. for our uh, for our club members, which is good fun. Um, can you do it at home? Can you sort of practice at home as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you need a little bit of space, but you don't need yeah. too much because most of the moves that you can do, you can do just by moving one step forward and one step back. Yeah. So you know, it's not it's not ideal, 
but it keeps us moving and it keeps us sort of fit and it keeps us connected as a as a club so so that's really important Right, Val, I think we've come to an end. Uh, delighted that you've joined us. I think it's a great podcast. I think the story about the Olympics was fascinating. Uh, your insight about uh, what makes great HR uh, and its focus on the business and being commercial, I think, is uh, spot on. So thank you for spending the time with us. And I hope You're lots welcome. of people listen to this. And um, and when we put it out, I'm sure you'll promote it. And, and I'm sure you'll get lots of feedback. Good. As long as it's positive feedback. <laughs> <laughs>